Over the years, a number of you have approached me with questions about the meaning of the Lord's Supper and about how we approach the table here at First Presbyterian. Show of hands, how many of you have ever been at a wedding or some other type of ceremony in which the table were shared, but because you were not a part of that body, you were not allowed to partake in the meal that night or that for that event? Quite a few of you, yeah. Have you ever wondered why that's the case? What's the rationale behind this perspective? Others have pondered over the years about what Jesus meant when he said, this is my body. Did he mean that this is his literal physical body present in the bread and the cup? Or was he speaking only symbolically, meaning that in Reality, this is a mere memorial meal, and we share in it mainly because Jesus simply commanded us to. So it's an ordinance. Or is Jesus indeed present in some special way? And if this is the case, then how can that be? Or how many of you who have young children have wondered, when is it appropriate for my child to partake in the elements? Now, all of these are great questions and it makes sense that there would be so many questions surrounding the table because the truth of the matter is it is filled with deep layers of rich meaning not all of which are agreed upon or emphasized in the same way by different Christian bodies in fact disagreement over the meaning of the Lord's table was the central subject of contention that originally divided the Christian church into denominations during the Reformation period of church history. So this is serious stuff that we're going to talk about today. And as a result of that, I'm going to ask that you would indulge me as I bring to us what might be a little bit more of kind of a teaching message today. Because the reality is there are a number of very deep things to consider, given that the table speaks to a number of deep aspects of our faith. So there are two primary places where we find information about the Lord's table. The first place, of course, is the gospel accounts of the Last Supper where Jesus led his followers in a final meal. Now, these detailed accounts can be found in Mark 14, Matthew 26, and Luke 22. But there's another place for information about the table, and that is the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, where he begins to apply the events of that night with Jesus and his disciples into a local congregation, in this case in Corinth, uh, and this congregation just happened to be going through a number of tumultuous things that he felt like he needed to address. And we'll see that when we start reading in verse 17 and uh, picking up again all through that. We'll see that Paul is not really, frankly, a happy camper. You'll pick up his tone. I'll try to highlight that. Truth of the matter is, he was chastising the church in the section on the Lord's Tupper. You see, the original meal was more or less like a church potluck during those early days. Everyone brought something. But the wealthier members of the congregation brought more and had more time to eat. 
They were richer, could bring more food. And because at this point in history, Sunday was not a day off of work in the Roman Empire, they had more leisure time. The poor members of the congregation had to work. So they would show up later. Paul is hot, not a happy camper, because the richer members of the congregation were eating before the poor members of the congregation could, and he says as a result that they were creating divisions in the body, jumping ahead before the others could come and participate. I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles now to this passage in 1 Corinthians and follow along as I read for us. If you uh, did not bring your Bibles with you, you can either use your digital Bible, which is in your hand right now, turn to this passage. We'll be reading from the NIV. And of course, it's found in the Pew Bible as well, beginning on 1,784. Hear now the Word of God. In the following directives, I have no praise for you For your meetings do more harm than good. Do you get a sense of Paul's disposition here? Mm -hmm. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. But when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and to drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats and drinks of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks damnation upon himself. That is why so many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judge ourselves we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. May the Lord God bless to us this reading of a portion of his word. Because there really is so much death of truth surrounding the table, I'm going to ask that you would travel with me this morning through four dimensions of reality so that we can see in the limited time that we have together some of the things that God would have us know about his son's table. 
So here's my outline this morning, and you can write this down if you like. There's no outline place in your bulletin, but maybe in the margins or something, you can jot this down very quickly. Those of you who, with, who have young children, I would really encourage you to write this outline down, and I'll tell you why uh, that's such a good thing in a while. So here's the outline. We're going to look back. We're going to look up. We're going to look forward. And then finally, we're going to look around to see what the table means. Sound good? Okay, great. Let's start. So beginning in verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. So when Jesus broke the bread that night, he was embedding himself into a stream of tradition of something that God had been doing for centuries and something the Jewish community continues to celebrate even to this day. That historical event was the hinge of the entire Old Testament and that was God's release of his people from bondage in Egypt as described in the book of Exodus starting in chapter 12. And the celebration is the Passover meal given to the Israelites in order to commemorate their deliverance from the Egyptians. So don't forget about the Egyptians, by the way. We're going to get back to those folks in just a little bit. We know from the gospel accounts that it was the Passover meal that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples that night because he says in Luke twenty-two fifteen, 15, he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. In the Passover celebration, a lamb is slain as a sacrifice to recall how God instructed them in Exodus 12 to smear lamb's blood over their doorpost so that the angel of death would pass by, would literally pass over their homes. They were also instructed in Exodus 12 to eat unleavened bread for nourishment and as a reminder that they were to quickly leave Egypt when God called them to set out for their journey in the promised land. This Passover bread is the bread that Jesus broke that night. But here's the really amazing thing. He made the entire meal about himself. A series of cups were also shared during the Passover meal. The biblical account says that Jesus, uh, when Jesus picked up the third cup, he said this, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. When Jesus spoke about the cup and the new covenant, all kinds of imagery would have come flooding into the minds of those who heard him that night. First of all, in places like Psalm 75 and Isaiah 51, the cup there was a symbol of God's wrath. So by lifting up the cup, Jesus was saying that he was taking upon himself the wrath that was, we deserve to experience so we as followers can have peace with God. We'll be reminded of this in just a moment when we sing a conclusion of the message, uh, the second stanza of the hymn in Christ alone where it says, the wrath of God was satisfied. His reference to the new covenant would have also reminded his disciples of God's promises in Jeremiah chapter 31 of a day when God would write his law not merely on tablets of stone, but would write it on hearts and minds as well. Jesus was saying that in himself and in this meal, that promise has become true. 
each time after Jesus shares the bread and the cup. He commands his disciples to eat and to drink the cup in remembrance of him. Just as God commanded the Passover meal is a reminder of his redemption of Israel from bondage in Egypt. So Jesus has called us to commemorate and to celebrate this meal in order that we would remember our own deliverance from the pain of sin and death and hell made possible by his shedding of his blood on the cross. So we can see that the Lord's Supper has deep roots in the history of God's redemption of his people. The radical thing that Jesus did that night was to say that all of these things that God had done in the past and all the things that God has promised were now being fulfilled in him. The bottom line is this. Jesus is the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world. That's the gospel. And you and I are proclaiming the good news of that gospel as a community each and every time we celebrate in this meal. So, we've looked back. Now let's look up. And in this regard, I want us to think about what it means that Christ is present with us now at his table. In just a few chapters previous to what we read in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this in the midst of clearing up another mess in Corinth. He says this. He asks rhetorically, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of one loaf. The Greek word here behind our English translation participation is the word koinonia. Many of you have heard this word before. We have a Sunday life group that's actually named koinonia. It's a great biblical word. Koinonia is one of those terms that has such deep, rich meaning behind it. It's hard to capture in an English translation with just one synonymous term. So you'll find other translations that will say fellowship or communion here uh, in this passage that's translated for us. So let's read it again this way. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks communion in the blood of Christ? This is a legitimate way of translating this. It is not the bread that we break a communion in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for all partake of one loaf. Paul is saying that partaking in the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, involves participation, fellowship, communion, a real connection in which we share in the life of the risen Lord Jesus and the benefits of his shed blood and his broken body. This also includes communion not only with him, but also with one another. So here's the question. How can this be so? How can Christ be present with us here now at this table? Well, folks, that's the million-dollar questions that Christians have struggled with for centuries. So I want to tell you how we address it here from the perspective of centuries of reflection on this topic ourselves. First, we are not saying 
that Christ is physically present in the bread and the cup. This was the position of the church in the Middle Ages, and it continues to be a position that some hold today. This is why we, as Protestant Presbyterians, uh, are not allowed to partake in the supper at a wedding or some other event in some other bodies. This is because this position holds that you and I have, quote, not discerned or recognized the body, as Paul says in our reading today from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The idea is, is that because you and I do not recognize the physical presence of Christ in the elements, we are not qualified, frankly, to partake in it. Well, the problem with this perspective is the actual context uh, that we've just read this morning. Here, Paul is not calling us to affirm the physical presence of Christ in the body, body in the bread, but to see his body as the church, made up of all believers, rich and poor alike. So friends, remember this context thing. It will get you out of trouble uh, many more times than not. So the opposite position that others hold is that there is no special presence of Jesus at the table, physical or otherwise. The table is simply a memorial meal in which we are commanded to participate as a reminder of Christ's sacrifice. In this perspective, the communion elements merely represent the body and the blood of Jesus. So in between these two approaches is where we fall. And so that you can have a very clear sense of this, I put what I'm going to say on the video screen so you can track along with me to get it just right. So here it is. Communion with God is an act of the Holy Spirit. We do not believe that Christ is physically present in the bread and the cup because the scriptures say and the Apostles' Creed affirms that the resurrected body of Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father, all body. In other words, the body of Jesus is localized. Instead, we believe that Christ is spiritually present at the table by the sending of his Holy Spirit which lifts our souls to heaven where we commune with his resurrected body. So we believe that Christ is actually present at the table, but it is a real spiritual presence made possible by God's working through the Holy Spirit. So I hope that has been helpful to you. Maybe that will clear some things up and some things that you've kind of looked at in the past. You may have also noticed that we never call this table an altar, right? That's because altars are where one performs a sacrifice. And we believe, based on the book of Hebrews, that Christ's sacrifice 2,000 years ago was once and for all. So we don't need altars anymore. But here's the thing. Presbyterians do actually have an altar. Do you know where it is? It's on a hill outside Jerusalem called Calvary. That's our altar. Now let's look forward. I think in the American church we are pretty good about considering the meaning of the Lord's Supper by looking back and looking up. But we tend not to be as good as setting our gazes forward. Frankly, beyond ourselves to, some, to the big picture of what God is doing around the world. But I want us to listen to what Jesus says in the gospel accounts. He said, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I supper. We saw that. 
But now check out the next verse. He says, for I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And then likewise, he repeats himself again just two verses later when he says this. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And in the text from 1 Corinthians that we read this morning, the Apostle Paul calls us as Christians to set our gaze ahead when he says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Jesus knew that he was going to be slain as the perfect Passover lamb and that he would eat no more Passover meals until the coming of the future kingdom. After this, he will renew physical communion with those who through the ages have shared in the supper in spirit and truth. We have glimpses of what this will be like in the book of Revelation. I want to read for us a scene from the book of Revelation chapter 9, verse 9. Chapter 7, verse 9. And as I read this, I would ask that you actually look at the artwork on the screen rather than me, please. So it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and wearing palm branches in their hands, And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation begins to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This painting was produced for the 40th anniversary celebration of Presbyterian Frontier Fellowship, one of our major international mission partners. The bottom of the artwork, you'll see a depiction of people from every nation, tribe, and language. And in the background, there's also the river of the water of life and the tree of life. I think this is a beautiful picture of heaven. But as we read further into the book of Revelation, we can see that there's even even a deeper level of communion with Christ that we will enjoy. For you see, Jesus will once again draw his followers together to host a meal for us when all things are consummated in the great messianic wedding supper to come. So Revelation 19 says this, that I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. I can't wait. Can you? Are you ready? Well, I think really the only way to get ready for all this is frankly to do one more thing and that is to look around. To look around with eyes of faith to see what God is doing in the world now to make this scene a reality to as Paul says recognize the body many of you know a few months ago a few of us went on an exploratory trip to Egypt to see how we can partner with two Presbyterian hospitals there and our two sister churches in the Cairo area 
In between all that, we had a chance to see some of the sights, and yeah, we had a little fun. I can tell you that we had fun, but I can't tell you any details because uh, what happens in Egypt stays in Egypt. It might even involve some dancing. I don't know. I do have a very important announcement to make, however. After four or five trips to Egypt, I have finally ridden a camel. I'm glad I did. But let's just say I feel no compulsion to ever do it again. My camel had this unusual habit of stomping the ground as she walked along about every 20 steps or so. And when she did this stomping, I could feel it go all the way up my spinal cord. You may have noticed that I referred to my camel as she. That's because we named all of our camels. The young ladies in the trip called their camels by boy names. So there was Ron and Derek and Harry. The guys gave their camels girl names, so there was Betsy, Sally, and my camel, Gertie. In addition to stomping the ground, Gertie had another habit, and that was biting Sally. I can't seem to get Gertie's beautiful face out of my mind. Believe it or not, we actually did get a few worthwhile things done while we were there on the trip. Uh, Jimmy Hofstetter, our church videographer, is currently producing a wide array of videos uh, that we're going to post on the new missions wall that's a part of the facility across the way here. So uh, there'll be some announcements about that in the future when it's finished. We spent four days in two hospitals training the staff and listening to their needs as Christian healthcare providers. Including in this was nurse training at both sites. Margaret Hironi was able to train pastors in crisis pastoral care. Our doctors had an opportunity to just speak with other physicians there at the hospital, as well as those medical students at an area university. If any of you are medical professionals, I would like to talk to you about the next time that we go to Cairo, potentially in February of 2024. Now, as I mentioned earlier, our task was to begin to enter into a deeper relationship with our two sister churches and to begin to discern how we can continue to partner with them, specifically in their mission to plant new churches in the neighborhoods of Cairo. The Presbyterian Church of Egypt, by the way, is the largest Protestant body in the Middle East, and they are currently undertaking an ambitious campaign to plant new churches all around the Arabic-speaking world. And if you can see the map there, it's kind of hard to see. Um, you can see the red dots where these new churches are starting. As a part of that effort, Elder Ahmad uh, from one of our sister churches uh, has led the planting of a new church in the poor area of the city. Uh, That's me on the left-hand side if you can't figure that out. Just let you know. Um, This is a picture of the very nondescript street in which the church is located. There are no paved roads there. That's good for your kidneys too. When I visited there over a year ago in March 2022, they were just starting to build their church facility. At that point, all I saw was some brick and sand lying around. It was ready to be mixed into cement. Well, with our mission committee's funding, along with their own church's contributions, they were able to complete their building this past December 
So take a look at this picture now. They have three floors completed with space for worship, fellowship, and discipleship. Guys, maybe we should have hired some of their subcontractors. I don't know. They have 120 kids from the neighborhood and another 100 youth who are part of their weekly discipleship ministries. The day after I visited them, Elder Ahmad showed me a picture on his smartphone of an additional 70 kids who were already being bused from another poor neighborhood to this one so that they can be discipled in the words and ways of Jesus. They've already started planting the next church. They're doing that because the church that we help them construct and pull together is basically full. That's the way it goes for them. They know how to do it, and the Lord blesses them. Now, somewhere along the way, in the midst of all of this, while I was talking with them, I sensed that maybe our friends at this new church might need their own communion set. I knew from experience it can be hard for Egyptians to get these kinds of things, and certainly a, uh, to get a number of things, and certainly a Christian communion set might be one of them. And apparently, Amazon does not do their thing in Cairo, right? So... Um, we have a short video to show you this church plant and the, that we are supporting and praying for them. Let's play the video. One of the things that we talk about in the States is how disciples make disciples. And we're watching that in a very vivid fashion here in, uh, in Egypt. Specifically, the El Zahor church plant, we were able to talk to a number of young children who are being discipled by older kids and, of course, adults as well, and to watch them being brought along as leaders uh, both within uh, the Egyptian context and in the Sudanese context as well. من 2017 كان عندنا رؤية في الكنيسة إن إحنا نتحرك يعني نبنى مكان جديد ونزرع فيه كنيسة فجينا هنا في الزهور فالزهور ما كانش فيها أي عمل روحي خالص وأقرب كنيسة بالنسبة للمنطقة هنا على بعد 5 كيلو أول ما كان شيء كنيسة خالص في المنطقة بس الشيخ لما يتنزل وعمل كنيسة اللي هي في بيتنا دلوقتي والخدمة فرقت معنا كتير قوي ودلوقتي بعدين الكنيسة اللي هي صغيرة اللي هناك بقى عندنا كنيسة كبيرة وإن شاء الله يعني هنيجي نخدم فيها هنا وأحب إن أنا أكون من خدام درس الأحد the wonderful thing about the El Zahor Church is we already have a vision for planting another church in the Muhammad Nagib area. <laughs> Yesterday was a very special time. We were able to present to some of the leaders of the El Zahor Church their first communion set. We brought that from the States and had some engravement in there to kind of mark that special occasion. Well, how about that, folks? So now here's the thing. They're planting this church, and they're starting the next one without a pastor. That says something. I'm just not quite sure what. Elder Ahmad asked me to lead the congregation in communion when we return next year. What an honor. Let me ask you all something. This communion set, it cost about $330. Who do you think provided the funds for that? 
Well, the, the missions committee of our congregation took it from our general missions budget here, and that means it was you. Any of you who have contributed to the offering here on a weekly basis, you were a part of providing that communion set in Cairo. You were a part of discipling those kids and planting that church in that poor area. Did you see the pretty young girl in, in yellow who was speaking in the video there? Did you hear how she talked about the church had made such a difference in her life? When she, and when she grows up, she wants to be a leader in Sunday school and in worship. Her name is Johanna. What if one day, many years from now, in eternity, as you and I gather in that great scene in Revelation chapter 7 for worship around the throne with believers from every nation and tribe and language, and we sat down for the marriage supper of the Lamb, and what if it just happened that one of us sat down beside you, Hannah? And somehow, someway, she figures all this out. And she says, you're one of those believers from Greenville, South Carolina, who provided those communion trays for us. I distributed those communion plates for years in my church, and I saw this engraving on the plate, but I never knew what it meant. And she says, that was you. My friends, that's what Paul is talking about when he calls us in verse 29 to recognize the body of the Lord. It's about looking around to see what God is doing around the world through people like us, but also in people like Elder Emmett and young Johanna. And dear friends, let me tell you that this something is much bigger than you and me. It's even bigger than First Press Greenville. It's so about a worldwide movement towards the marriage feast of the Lamb. And along the way, he is using people like these Egyptians, the descendants of those original oppressors of God's people, to bring his light and love to the Middle East. What a big God. Who'd have thunk it? Friends, do you see it? Can you recognize his body at this table we can if we'll look back if we look up if we look forward and if we look around to see what God is doing now in our midst to transform the heart of our city and beyond